There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt Foundations podcast, your guide to the fundamentals of better deer hunting. And now, your host, Tony Peterson. Hey everyone, welcome to the Wired to Hunt Foundations podcast, which is brought to you by First Light. I'm your host, Tony Peterson, and today's episode is all about finding the right deer when there are many, many distractions in the woods, especially during the rut. So I guess the idea for this episode came to me while going back and forth with a good buddy of mine. He was at a farm that we both hunt, and he wanted to move one of my cameras from one trail to another. The pictures at the crossing where I had set it up, they just weren't that impressive. And last year during a late season hunt, we stumbled on a different crossing down the ravine from that where a doe that I had shot crossed and we didn't really know it was there. So when we were blood trailing her, we went through there and we're like, yeah, this is pretty cool. Now that newly discovered crossing, it looked pretty promising. So in this conversation, he decided to grab my camera and head on over there. But then he told me when he got there, he's like, yeah, the trail really isn't that beaten down, but there are quite a few rubs around it. So that's when I said to him, it's not about how many, Adam, but who? So there you go. That's what this episode is all about. If you could go back in time, say, I don't know, like 2,500 years to about 480 BC, you could witness an event that left an indelible mark on history, an event that is popularized to this day in modern culture, to the point where it's even being used to try to help people kill deer on a podcast written and produced by some random dude from Minnesota. This event, which took place on soil now covered by nearly 70 feet of sediment that has been continually deposited by a river with a name that I absolutely cannot pronounce, 
involved an invading Persian force and those famous Spartans that have been featured in all kinds of films and literature. The Battle of Thermopylae, which derives its name from the local hot springs, involved the only land route large enough to allow real foot traffic through a specific region of Greece. While it's often touted as a battle of like 300 versus as many as a million, it wasn't quite that one-sided. It was a battle, however, where the Spartans, along with some Thespians and Thebans, numbered somewhere near 7,000 at the start. The invading Persians, led by Xerxes, who was a bit too cocky for his own good, numbered somewhere between 120,000 to upwards of 300,000 soldiers. So the odds were pretty bad, but they were the invaders. And one thing we keep learning to this day is that if you're going to head into someone else's homeland and try to take them over, you better be ready to fight people who have real heart and real conviction and a general ferocity that isn't quite as ensconced in the invaders. For a week, the much smaller army defended its homeland and held off the invading army. They eventually fought to their death because they were so vastly outnumbered. And the moral to this story, my friends, is that the small defending army had the heart, the training, and they used their home turf advantage as a force multiplier. Now, they still lost, but they put up a history-altering fight. Those Spartans and their allies, they were the right ones. They were different from the invaders on multiple fronts, and the results showed that. In that case, it wasn't necessarily how many, but who, or I guess whom, if you're talking about people. Do you see what I did there? This is a stretch, but really the thing with whitetails is that sometimes you have to look for concentrations of them, the big numbers, if you will, and sometimes you're just looking for the right one. Now, if there's a more appropriate time to look for the right one than right in the heat of the rut, I don't think so. But before we get into this, I want to say that I actually am a big proponent of looking for deer concentrations in many, many different situations. Take big woods hunting, for example. It's almost a necessity to just have to find deer first before you can even start to think about a specific caliber of deer. I also find this to be true on nearly all of my public land whitetail hunts. Last month, in the beginning of October, I drove out to South Dakota to hunt public land with Tyler Jones and Casey Smith from the Element podcast. The goal first, even in that kind of relatively glassable and open country, was to just find concentrations of deer first. After that, we tried to drill down to some good bucks. That's the name of the game for public land, especially big chunks of public land that have experienced weeks of pretty intense hunting pressure. But now, no matter where you hunt, do you really need to locate concentrations or should you start looking for the clues that will lead you to the buck that you really want? I think the latter is important and is somewhat unconventional advice for the rut. Conventional advice would tell you to focus on the deer concentrations because in those you'll find your local does. And if you find the local does, like I talked about last week, the advice always says you'll find the bucks. I find this advice to be possibly true on any given random November day, but also not true on most any given random November day. I've been around a lot of does in November that didn't have 140 inches trying to sniff their butts nonstop. I've also found spots where the big bucks just seem to live during the rut and where they are far more likely to give a hunter a chance to shoot them. This strategy is partially due to the fact that while we often view rut movement as random and totally unpredictable, 
it's not. It's probably some of the most predictable deer movement of the season, honestly. You just need to understand that it happens at certain spots in daylight in your neck of the woods and not in a lot of the spots where you might think it should be happening. The rut insanity doesn't blanket the entire countryside in chasing bucks, even in states like Iowa. The bucks, especially bucks on pressure ground, of course, they do get dumber. They make more mistakes, but they don't often get dumb. They have areas they like, and often those areas are home to more than one buck in his rut activities. Now, this is another thing. Well, I'm going to go, I don't know, full ADHD on you for a second. It, this is something that drives me a little crazy. I hear hunters say that bucks won't tolerate other bucks, especially when they are all hopped up on testosterone and all that jazz. But they will, and they often do. Now, if that weren't true, you wouldn't be able to turn on the Sportsman's Channel and watch some show based off of high fence hunting without the fences where 17 different mature bucks enter the same food plot looking for love. The biggest buck I ever arrowed was vying for the attention of a single doe who also had two other potential boyfriends right around her. Those three bucks probably totaled about 420 inches of public land antlers, and they all seemed to set aside their differences for the common goal of getting one sexy Nebraska doe super pregnant. So what does all this rambling mean? It means it's time to stop thinking about the randomness of the rut and try to get specific, find the right deer. You might hunt in a place where the buck-to-doe ratio is so perfectly balanced or, hell, skewed toward the fellas that you can just sit downwind at your best doe bedding area and wait. But most folks can't, even if they think they can. Most of us need to find not necessarily where the best deer numbers are, but where the best odds of a buck or multiple bucks should be. I found this a few years ago on public land in North Dakota, and in four days of hunting, I only saw one doe. She did draw a really nice buck into shooting range, which I greatly appreciated. But the reality to the spot was that it was where the bucks felt safe cruising from chunk of public land to chunk of public land. But now you're probably thinking, enough humble bragging about all the giant public land bucks you've killed, dude. Get to the point. And the point is, my friends, that there are a few ways to find these spots that could have the right deer in them. The first that many people will default to is trail cameras. Now, I love trail cameras for some stuff, but not for pinning down the right deer during the rut. A trail camera on a funnel or a pinch point can certainly clue you into something good, so I don't discount that. I just think you're in a moment now where you don't have a lot of lag time when it comes to recon that way. A picture from a couple days ago is great, but it's just not the same thing as being there and seeing them. It's also not as exciting to me as finding a spot that is covered, and I mean covered in buck sign. Even then... That's not as cool as just, like I said, laying eyes on a buck or seven of them doing something during the rut. You know, here's the thing about observation. You have to understand what you're observing. And I'll give you an example. A few years ago in my home state of Minnesota, I sat on a variety of terrain traps trying to pin down a decent buck. What happened is that I didn't pin down a decent buck. I saw some scrappers and I saw some does and I based my strategy around that by just looking at the terrain but it didn't work. Even when the chasing should have been intense, I found myself watching doe groups lazily work their way through the woods without a buck in tow. And if I did see a buck, he was in like, I don't know, the forky to basket rack six pointer type range. I was hunting some deer concentrations, but I wasn't drilling down to the spots where the good bucks were. When I finally moved into an area that I suspected might be the ticket, I started seeing good bucks. Do you know what that area had that others didn't? A couple of things. It had water, 
I guess I should say it had better water anyway. They had a trout stream to dip down to and drink after playing grab ass all night. They also had better cover, which is real important. It's often subtle in November, but the difference between open woods and less open woods is, I don't know, sometimes the difference between 25 inches and 125 inches. That only gets more pronounced the more you hunt places with real pressure. In fact, that South Dakota hunt I mentioned that I did in October, the last night I moved into a woodlot that is pretty good size for South Dakota, but would you know almost be considered like an open prairie in Northern Michigan. That woodlot wouldn't, you know, wouldn't even draw the attention of a big woods hunter probably, but it was immediately clear to me that it was the thickest stuff around. I just found it a little too late. And when I got saddled up with my cameraman over my shoulder, the third deer we saw that night was a deer that came right out of that woodlot. And he was like a 130 inch buck, a really good deer for public land. Now it's all relative, my friends, but the truth is that deer like thick stuff. And this holds true even during the rut. In fact, in my experience, it often holds true most during the rut. So I go about it this way when I'm in the thick of it and I'm not seeing good deer. Just like with over-the-counter elk, I pull up my Onyx and I try to dissect the property I'm hunting. Where is the thickest cover? If not on the spot where I can hunt, how close is the thickest stuff on adjoining properties? And will that feed deer into and out of my ground? When I find something interesting, it's either a midday sneaky ninja scouting vest to check sign and tracks, or more likely, time to grab the mobile setup and get downwind on the edge. I want to be where I believe I can kill a deer, but also where I believe I'll see a deer, or more specifically, the right deer, the Spartan warrior deer, if you will. See what I did there? Now I'm going to get into a really important component of this next week when I talk about how deer stick to cover in a true deep dive fashion. But the thing is, even during the rut, the right spot is as important to find as the right deer. And usually you find one and you find the other. This is where I'm going to diverge once again from traditional rut advice. Sure, you should be aware of funnels and pinch points and terrain traps, but honestly, they're everywhere in a lot of the places we deer hunt. If you're in bluff country, you could probably find a good funnel in every 10 acres. If you're in open country, you could probably just play connect the dots between patches of cover and pin down some likely travel routes. In swamps, the dry spines of land connecting timber is the ticket. It's not rocket science, at least on the surface. But just finding a decent pinch point is kind of like finding one scraper a rub. What good does it do you? Maybe something. Maybe nothing. There has to be more to the story. Otherwise, it's kind of a hollow victory. Now, there are some rut-based studies out there on radio-collared bucks that show they have pretty specific cruising routes. These studies and the results are pretty fascinating and often show bucks making almost a cloverleaf type of route over and over and over and over again. They don't cover every inch of their territory, but they cover some of the inches of their territory multiple times a week. This means that you could be in the neighborhood a whole bunch of bucks, but for whatever reason, they don't spend hardly any time crossing through certain pinch points when they're on the hunt for the ladies. In this case, you might have the right deer on camera, but could easily be in the wrong spot. So how do you find the right spot again? Observation and a willingness to shake up the plan. If you have a terrain trap with a bunch of sign around it and a pounded trail going through, by all means, hunt it if the wind and the approach work in your favor. Give it an all-day sit, or at least a morning and an evening. What if it's all scrappers and does? What if the deer moving is just not happening? Well, this happens a lot, and we often make excuses for it. 
There must be a hot doe somewhere else that pulled all the bucks away. Or the rut must not be really going yet because the moon is full or Mercury is in retrograde or my sister's crystals that bring forth the good energy of Mother Earth are dirty or whatever. The truth is, the rut is happening. If it's November, it's happening for most folks outside of some truly southern locales. So we make excuses to keep hunting a dead spot. Or we don't put the effort in to hunt after a few sits because it's just not going. A better bet when you're riding a dead horse is just to dismount and climb up on a live one. Keep looking. Again, I know you're sick of hearing this, but this is why I always say you should have as many spots to hunt as possible. If you limit yourself to only 25 acres of private land because you believe the huge chunks of public land half an hour away aren't worth it, you're setting yourself up to keep riding that dead pony in a non-existent gallop to nowhere, my little buckaroos. Understand this. No, no, no. Believe this in your heart of deer hunting hearts. The right deer and the right spot to kill that deer are out there waiting for you. The deer will show you not only when you've found that winding combo, but also when you haven't. That lesson is one we don't listen to nearly enough, and it leads to a lot of unfilled tags during the rut. Channel your inner Spartan warrior and think about how the odds are stacked up against you as a hunter. Most of us on any given year won't kill a deer. An even smaller amount of hunters will kill a good buck on any given year. That's some rarefied air to breathe, even if by Instagram standards it seems like everyone's killing giants. They aren't, and it doesn't matter. What matters is that you take the time during the rut to keep hunting smart while looking for the terrain trap that the right caliber of bucks will use to find does. You might have to file through a spot or three or seven or ten. You might have to go mobile when you'd rather just sit in an old standby spot. But if you want to separate yourself from the average hunter, and believe me, you do, then there isn't much choice here. So keep looking. Keep letting the deer tell you where they want to be and show you what they want to do. Eventually, they'll give you everything you need to know to be in the right spot at the right time. Now, like I said, next week, I'm going to talk about how important cover is to deer travel. I think this seems obvious, but I don't think a lot of hunters understand how much this dictates buck movement. That's it for this week. I'm Tony Peterson. This has been the Wired to Hunt Foundations podcast, which is brought to you by First Light. As always, thank you so much for listening. And if you want more whitetail content, feel free to visit themeateater.com slash wired or visit our Wired to Hunt YouTube channel. And if you're feeling a little crazy and you want to see some deer hunting, go to the Meat Eater YouTube channel and check out Mark's new show, Deer Country. All I think all six episodes are out now. Check it out, binge it, get yourself pumped up, but watch it. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved 
via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.